time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. People, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War, episode 171, Cam Flying, kind of solo with an interview that I did a couple of weeks ago with a couple of young guys from Slovenia, one of the countries of the former Republic of Yugoslavia. Smart young guys that are listeners of the show, and we've been chatting on email, and I asked them to come on and have a chat. Um, They're too young to remember the era of Tito and the Republic of Yugoslavia. They would have both been born around about just before the beginning of the uh, Bosnian War. But um, they uh, are studying international relations at the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia. And they, um, you know, smart guys and came on to have a chat about how the history of the era of Tito and the Republic of Yugoslavia are taught in schools and at college there, and um, recollections of their their families, their parents and their grandparents from that era, and also about what what what's going on in that part of the world today, politically, and you know we talk about economically, coronavirus, that kind of stuff. So, really great chat. I've got another interview uh, next week as well. But uh, I hope you enjoy this. I certainly did. And thanks again to Loro and uh, Isaac Isaac for coming on and um, having a chat. Really appreciated it. All right, boys. Well, welcome to the Cold War Show, uh, Lovro and Isaac. Uh, first of all, tell everyone a little bit about uh, yourselves. Who wants to start? You can go first, Loro. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're uh, students from Slovenia. We study uh, international relations uh, in Ljubljana faculty. We are now uh, first first grade and we are going to the second. Uh, yeah, we, we finished the year quite well. Uh, now Corona uh, fucked us. <laughs> we, did, <laughs> we had some problems, but yeah, now it's, it's good. Where we, international yeah. relations. Uh, what what leads somebody to want to study international relations? Uh, yeah, I had this uh, teacher in uh, high school. He had uh, really interesting views on the world and the politics. And I said I had to challenge this. And then I went to the to study international relations and started uh, to read the books and stuff. And did it turn out he was right or wrong? Uh, wrong, yeah. He, <laughs> he was <laughs> pretty wrong, yeah. <laughs> And what about yourself, Isaac? What what led you to want to study international relations? Oh, well, um, I was always interested in politics. And I think international relations is just politics on a bigger scale. So when I found out we have this, um, uh, that you can study actually that, so international politics, I was like, yeah, 
uh, I gotta I gotta go to this uh, class. And now uh, after one year, I think it was the right choice. It's definitely interesting, and uh, we learn a lot basically. That's a good book you've got on your bookshelf behind you, the one with the red cover. <laughs> I specifically yeah. sat it there, so you 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 would notice it. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. I bought it yeah. after you recommended it in your podcast. You could have put my book up there if you really <laughs> wanted to suck I have, up. But... I, I haven't I haven't bought your book uh, yet. Sorry. Uh, it might be pretty <laughs> yeah. hard to might be hard to get in Slovenia. Um, for for the record, the book that he has on he has strategically placed <laughs> in camera view is uh, Legacy of Ashes. Yeah, terrific book. Have you read it yet, or did you just buy it there for? Uh, uh, to no, look good? no, I'm not. I'm, I haven't read it yet, but I'm, I plan to. I just finished uh, the New Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which you recommended as well, and I finished that yesterday. And I then uh, I'm going to read this one. Oh, good man. Good for you. So tell me, I've got a map of Slovenia I opened up earlier. Tell me whereabouts you guys are exactly. Uh, well, we are in the capital city in Ljubljana. In, oh, in the, okay. Almost in the middle of Slovenia. Yeah. 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 Where the famous prison was that uh, Tito was thrown into. Yeah. Is it's 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 I believe it's still there, right? I think it's like a tourist site, yeah, isn't it? It, the it, might, it might be a tourist prison? site. Yeah, it might be a tourist site, uh, but uh, it's it's still there. But I don't know if you can regularly visit it. I'm not sure. I should have checked. Right. Yeah, well, I'm coming over. When I come over, I want I want you guys to you know show me around. Yeah, no problem. We'll, we'll as, give you a tour. <laughs> yeah, as soon as COVID stops fucking with us. <laughs> so. Um, well, tell me about uh, life in Ljubljana. Ljubljana. How do you pronounce that properly? Ljubljana. 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 Tell me about tell me about life there. What's it like? Uh, you can go, Isaac. Uh, well, I've been to almost all capitals of Europe, and I must say that Ljubljana is still my favorite. It's, in my opinion, I'm probably biased, but still the most beautiful city in the world. Uh, and wow. uh, life here is pretty chill, I must say. Uh, there's not a lot of crime. Uh, people are generally living good uh, because we only had 10 days of war. We did much better than uh, Bosnia or Croatia. So now our living standards are more, um, more to Italy and Austria than maybe Serbia. Uh, and yeah, I must say people are nice. Uh, people are kind. Um, we obviously have problems. Uh, still, a lot of people are living in poverty. But all in all, especially in Ljubljana, because uh, most people come here to work. Yeah, there is a housing problem. Yeah, we have a yeah, housing, housing problem. problem for, there are not uh, enough uh, apartments for students and stuff. Yeah. So it's mm. hard to... And, and, uh, What's the population? Uh, around three, three, 300,000. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so Slovenia it's, it's has two million. Quite small. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. small. It's small. But mm -hmm. it is the it's the biggest city in uh, Slovenia. But still, I mean, compared to other capitals in Europe, it's definitely small. So you guys are how old? Nineteen. Twenty. 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 Right. And you were kind enough um, to shoot me some emails over the last few weeks, and we've been sort of talking about your. F parents and grandparents' uh, recollections and thoughts on the Tito period and the, the later communist period, I guess. Um, you know, I guess it, it, it's difficult for us in the West, um, and I don't know how long you've been listening to the Cold War series, but um, 
you know, one of the challenges that I and I think a lot of listeners in the United States, in Australia, in the UK, um, Canada, places like that have is, um, you know, we were brought up with, a, you know, a very biased view of all communist countries. And um, it was sort of, um, I mean, not, not that there wasn't some truth to the things that we were told, but we, we were given a, you know, a very uh, one-eyed perspective on uh, communism and the, the pros and cons and etc. cetera. Um, for yourselves with the culture there, like I know when I go to, um, when I go to France, the, um, the depiction that the French have of Napoleon is in the schooling system. You know, when I talk to people who grew up in France and just in the culture in general is very different to my understanding of Napoleon as an historian. Um, they have a, they have a, they have um, a, a very um, negative view of Napoleon in France and they, they sort of, grow up believing that he was a bit of a, uh, you know, warmonger and a bad guy. Um, growing up, going through the education system in Slovenia, did you feel that the um, view you were given of uh, the communist era had a, a particular bias to it? Or was it, was it pro anti neutral? What are your thoughts on how the, the current culture perceives that period, say, from 45 through to, I don't know, the late 80s? You can go lower and then I'll add on, maybe. Uh, yeah, I would, just, I would say it depends on the teacher uh, and his views. We mostly um, went away from the ideo ideological uh, debates, so so we didn't exactly go into the, for example, uh, purges and uh, uh, Goliathok and stuff. But uh, yeah, we talked about the history of Yugoslavia. Um, there was um, how important it was, as uh, as Beginio Brzezinski said, it was the only country with uh, Soviet Soviet Union and U.S. Uh, to establish itself as a factor in global arena in that time. So, yeah, um, it's a mostly neutral um, view on the history of Yugoslavia. But uh, now there's a big problem in Slovenia with the left and the right and the communism and the history of the communism. So, yeah, you can add on, Isaac, if you want. Yeah, I'd like to add that it most how, how you shape your view on, on the history of Yugoslavia it might be mostly depends on your parents, in my opinion, because if your parents or maybe grandparents actually were part of the home guard, so not the partisans, you obviously never liked Tito or your parents basically said, well, Tito was a bad guy and stuff like that. But um, if, uh, if you generally look into or read about Yugoslavia, I think it's very hard not to get a, at least a, a kind of positive view of Tito. Obviously, not everything was good, but I think when it comes to Tito, the good uh, beats the bad. Like, uh, for example, like when you go to, you hear Westerners talk about um, Stalin, how he was a bad guy and stuff like that. But then you you go to Russia, and probably every third or second Russian will say, "Well, life was better back then. At least we had a house. We no one was homeless. University was free." And I think the same goes here. Probably every other yeah. Slovenian would say, "Well, at least uh, you, uh, at least we had healthcare. We universities were free, and um, no one was homeless. Everyone had a house." And 
that basically that shapes more of a positive view of Tito, but there were bad things as well, obviously. There were a, a lot more uh, social rights than political rights. So yeah, you could get uh, faster, you could get job and you, you got the house. So yeah, some things were better. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, I get that. And, um, you know, it reminds me as I've often said, um, when I'm talking about a place like Cuba, you talk to Cuban um, emigres in Miami and they uniformly have a negative view of uh, Castro and the communist regime, but people like to point that out and you go, well, of course they do. <laughs> they're, they're, the, they're the grandchildren of the people that lost, that were on the losing side of the civil war, uh, most of them. Um, so of course they're going to have a negative view of it. And that's again, not to say that everything that happened uh, uh, under the, the, Castro regime was uniformly positive, but there was, um, you know, there was always going to be at least two camps, yeah. the people that were for the revolution and the people that were against the revolution. And then the people who were for the revolution who turned against the government later on because they disagreed with a policy or whatever. But um, yeah, nothing is as simple as it gets made out in uh, some of the history books, right? Yeah, I'd say it's it's basically the same here as in Cuba, but those uh, exiles went to Miami and with us, they mostly went to Argentina or Latin American yeah, countries. And also Ger Germany, Germany, Western yeah, yeah. countries. Yeah, as a workforce. But a lot of them also stayed in Slovenia and, well, I mean, and they have an opposite view of what actually happened, at least in my opinion. Because the communists won, uh, Yugoslavia was one, of, was one of the countries that mostly liberated itself. We obviously had some help from the USSR, but um, uh, it's obviously a negative feeling that you, you fought on the, on the wrong side. And then uh, obviously what the communists did, uh, what the communists, uh, did then after the civil war uh, gave them even more... Um, they could talk of negative things because actually co the communists were doing negative things. Uh, but uh, all in all, I think it's a sort of a resentment uh, that they fought on the wrong side of the war and they lost, as you said, as uh, the Cuban Revolution. It's basically very similar. And, that, and, you know, this is a war, obviously, that only happened 70 years ago. I mean, you know, in the United States, they're still dealing with the North versus the South from a civil war that they fought. 160 years ago, they're still <laughs> arguing about who was right and who was wrong and what happened over there. So, you know, these, um, these things, uh, the, the, the fallout from civil wars can last a long time. Yeah. And, you know, I guess that's one of the things I found interesting as we've been talking about the history of this region, which admittedly I knew very little about when we started, probably no less about now. Um, the you know just the um, the centuries and centuries of religious and uh, social conflict that came before Tito before the communists it seems like it, just on paper it would be an incredibly difficult um, position to be in trying to unify a country with such a divisive history. Um, do you think that is, is it generally recognized over there that, uh, 
you know, the country has, um, uh, well, the region has a long and, and bloody history. Yeah, especially uh, Bosnia War and Kosovo were, were pretty bad after the dissolution of uh, Yugoslavia. Well, and, that's, uh, the, that's the latest one, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, this, yeah, a thousand yeah. years before that and then yeah. that one, you know, <laughs> yeah. which was a, a classic example as soon as, you know, they, they loosened. It's a bit like when I, I don't know if you've heard any of the Syria shows that we've done on the Bullshit Filter. When we started the Bullshit Filter, we did uh, 25 episodes on the Syrian Civil War and we were talking about, Assad and his father, and yes, they um, have ruled Syria with an iron fist in many ways, but their justification would be, well, this region has a lot of groups that hate each other and want to kill each other. It takes an iron fist to keep them from doing that, um, which is a, I mean, it's an, it's an argument I can understand whether or not it's an easy argument to live with is another story. Yeah, same goes for Gaddafi, for example, uh, when, uh, when obviously he was a dictator, but when he was operating the country, everything worked regularly fine. Or, um, for example, obviously now Yugoslavia, when Tito was there, he was this strong figure that uh, everyone loved. Uh, and as soon as he died, obviously those... Um, those past uh, conflicts spurred up again and um, yeah. people were uh, basically he held the countries together as i said i think in one of the emails the tito was yugoslavia as soon as he was gone all of those religious and religious uh, conflicts just spurred back and uh, everything basically went downhill uh, he died 90, when like late 90 i think 98 1980 yeah 1980 yeah yeah so it was about you know ten, it was about a decade later when um, the next war happened. It yeah. held together for a decade after he died. Yeah, and but it, fractured. It was it was a mess. I think uh, you could say the same for uh, let's say communist Poland. Uh, I think again in the nineteen eighties they had their um, their small revolution and then uh, um, a strict regime was imposed, but everything didn't. It, stuff didn't work out the same was for yugoslavia after tito died uh, things just weren't running as they were before uh, and it was writing on the wall that sorry, there yeah. were also other problems with uh, decentralization of the government and uh, the crisis of 1973 uh, foreign borrowing uh, and stuff yeah, and imf reforms so yeah that was a big problem after yeah, After good old Peter. IMF reforms. <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah. I, we we have a lot of Iraqi uh, immigrants in Australia, and I've quite often ended up with Iraqi guys as uh, you know, taxi drivers, Uber drivers, and we get into a conversation. Um, and the, the the uniform thing I hear from them is, look, you know, life under Saddam was pretty good, if as long as you didn't, you weren't one of his enemies. If you're one of his enemies, it wasn't good. For everybody else, the yeah. other 90, 98% of the population, life was pretty good, right? We, you know, it was a pretty high standard of living. Um, if you were a threat, yeah, then it wasn't good. But, um, you know, he held it together. And obviously we've seen what happened in that region after the Americans got rid of Saddam. Yeah. It um, collapsed as a disaster, yeah. yeah it still is. Mm. Uh, I think uh, I just wanted to add that I think the same thing could be said for China. 
uh, it's obviously an authoritarian regime, but can you imagine how things would work if there was, let's say, 400 parties, each each ethnic group would uh, vote its own uh, party and it would probably be a mess uh, compared yeah. to what it is right now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, like, and this is quite often the view that I take of Stalin, um, well, Lenin and then Stalin. Uh, look, if you, if you position yourself in Russia in 1918 or 1924, 1930, anywhere along that timeline, massive challenges as a country, 180 odd million people, um, barely entered the industrial revolution coming from, you know, straight out of feudalism, basically trying to, with, with surrounded by threats, internal and external (laughs) threats of, starvation internally because they can't produce enough food for this uh, population that's growing massively because they're orthodox and having 12 kids a house Um, and threats externally the west once once they can once they declare themselves as a socialist slash communist government threats from the west who you know the as we pointed out on a show the british and the americans invaded in 1919-1920 threats then from both the fascists in italy and the fascists in germany um enormous challenges i mean to try and work out well how do you navigate if i was given the job of running that country in that time with the level of technology that they had you know and and or the lack thereof um it's easy, I think, to understand the viewpoint like, okay, I've got a plan. I'm going to get us through this. Everyone either get in line or get out of the fucking way because um, we don't have time to fuck around. We've got, <laughs> that's why we have a series of five-year plans because we've, we've got to pull this fucking thing together or it's, you know, we're going to die either because of famine or or we're going to get invaded by one or a number of these countries simultaneously which of course eventually did happen with you know tragic consequences and i and i feel the same about tito where we're up to with the story um coming out of world war ii uh you know he, he also doesn't trust the west uh with good reason as I, we've explained on a recent episode, I'm not sure if it's one that's come out or not yet. I'm not exactly sure what we've put out, but um, you know, he he's he's watching Churchill uh, send troops to Greece to overthrow the communists in Greece and reinstall the monarchy. So he has good reason not to trust the British. The Americans, through back channels, are already talking about you know, reinstalling the, uh, the, the, um, uh, blah, blah, blah. What are they called? The, got a mental blank. Too much whiskey at night. Oh. Yeah. That's why I record in the mornings, not in the evenings. Um, the Ustasha, oh, sorry, reinstalling yeah, the Ustasha. Ustasha. Okay. Sorry. And you've got, uh, you know, and then you've got the, the, the Pope and you've got Stalin's not really uh, playing ball, playing very nicely with him. Uh, and he and Stalin are also worried that the West are going to rebuild, the, rebuild Germany into a threat again. 
Um, you know, it's it, it, it plus all of the internal divisions that the country had suffered from for centuries. It's an incredibly thorny problem that I think does require some sort of a strongman approach to pull it together for a period of time. Yeah. I think basically the same logic you used for Stalin or uh, Lenin could be directly applied to pretty much any communist leader as well as Tito. Yugoslavia was a mess after 1945. So many ethnic divisions, so many religions. Uh, the country was destroyed by the Germans. Uh, it had to be rebuilt. And the fastest way to rebuild it was with the, with the five-year plans. The country said, okay, we got to focus. We gotta, there's no time to fuck around, as you said. And they basically rebuilt the country relatively quickly. Same goes for uh, Russia after the World War II. The country was destroyed and uh, the planned economy basically um, fixed it in a couple of years. You, you could imagine what would happen maybe if a, if a completely capital, capitalist um, government would be implemented. Would Russia really be rebuilt as fast as it was? In my opinion, that would never happen. Yeah, but we had a slightly different uh, economic plans. We had a uh, self-managing socialism, so it was uh, different from a Soviet-style economic. We got uh, a foreign aid also from U.S. and we enjoyed uh, most favorite favorite nation treatment from U.S. We and Poland only, yeah, from the communist countries. Yeah, yeah. After so the after basically we go we after yeah. the Tito Stalin fallout. Uh, the Americans basically yeah. decided they liked us better than the Russians, so we got some aid. You know, the, the, Tito was the the good communist yeah. kind of. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you did get you did get some um, uh, aid, uh, quote unquote. Uh, I haven't really dug into the economics of that yet, but uh, I remember you know digging into the um, the finer points of the Marshall Plan. It, I mean, it wasn't really aid. It was uh, America's way of buying the economies of Western Europe and yeah. dragging them into their uh, trading block. I'm not exactly sure to what extent they did that with Yugoslavia, but I imagine uh, to to must have been to a certain extent if they were willing to come to the play, to, to the table. Yeah, people like to say. Yeah, our, yeah, you, uh, sorry, sorry, Laura. Um, uh, people like to say problem. our um, our socialism wasn't as hard as uh, as the Soviet one. Our, uh, I, mean, I think Tito started with collect collectivization, but um, it wasn't as harsh. It didn't as in, work. Yeah, it, also it kind of didn't work. But uh, and after it didn't work, they stopped, and it wasn't as harsh as uh, in the USSR, whereas Stalin um, did. Uh, it, it was much more. Um, uh, uh, harsh than in here in Yugoslavia. And, mm. Yeah, they, they, yeah may, maybe. Then, that, uh, sorry, yeah, Laura, you go, you go. Kardel uh, Kidrich, Milovan Dalic then came out, came up with uh, this uh, self-managing socialism, and then uh, Yugoslavia came from underdeveloped country to developed country. But it's hard to say. It also um, foreign aid also had um, an effect on this uh, outcome. So yeah. But, uh, so explain this self-managing socialism to me. I'm not familiar with how that worked. Yeah, they are basically from uh, um, 
Marx free association uh, communist um, free uh, free association of producers from Marx uh, work was this uh, so the factories were basically would uh, belong to the workers they would decide what to do and uh, stuff so yeah. uh, but uh, also yeah un universities had uh, self managing they they had a big autonomy it was copied then all around the world from Yugoslavia Right. So they just, they had collective owned operations and they could, yeah. they could uh, operate freely within that. Yeah, kind of, it wasn't uh, implemented to the, um, to the degree that they, that it should be, but yeah, they started doing it. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, um, you know, I think um, whenever I have conversations with, with friends here about, socialism you know i had i i was on a a phone call with a guy i know in sydney recently who's an uber right-wing guy and um i mentioned something jokingly about me being a communist and he said uh, you know do you really think that centralized planning can work and i had to point out that a i don't think that's necessarily a, a facet um, of necessarily of, of socialism or communism. I think that was part of this uh, attempt to steer large fractured societies through a series of five-year plans as quickly as possible because they needed to. Um, but secondly, I do think central planning can and does work. We have centralised planning now in the West, I mean, our, our COVID responses, at least in places like Australia, I don't know about how it's being handled over here, but here it's certainly been centrally planned. Uh, government's laying down the rules about what can and can't be done and doling out money to people, creating a, a form of universal basic income. And uh, it, it works, at least so far, to an extent, but that's in the year 2020 where we have communication networks and computers and the ability to distribute funds and information in real time to 23 million people uh, in 1920 or 1930 or 1940, 1950 in countries that were underdeveloped to begin with. Uh, it was an incredibly difficult exercise, but I think people sort of, confuse uh, the, the concept uh, with the era in which these concepts were, they attempted to implement these concepts in Russia and Yugoslavia and Cuba and China under Mao, et cetera. They were, they were behind the eight ball trying to take quantum leaps from being backwards to catching up and, and surpassing. Like I quoted in our show recently, Gilles said that, Within 10 years, they thought they were going to be have a more advanced economy than the United Kingdom. So um, maybe I'm not sure if they really believe that, but it was a pretty pretty ballsy vision. <laughs> maybe I'd like to add that, uh, and I'm, I'm not just making this stuff up. I read this in a book uh, by Tony Jute. It, uh, it's a big, uh, famous book about uh, post-war Europe. And he talks about how basically uh, all of Europe after the World War II was obviously destroyed. And the uh, even uh, places like France, uh, England, obviously, um, the Labour Party was elected after a war. 
uh, they all had a sort of planned economy uh, for rebuilding. Um, there was no private uh, private companies building. Everything was planned by the government, and this is basically how Europe was rebuilt. And after um, maybe 10 to 20 years, when uh, the infrastructure was sort of back, then they started uh, regressing maybe back to uh, a more capitalist society where private companies can build stuff as well. But at first it was mostly everything was planned because they had to, otherwise it would be a huge mess. And obviously the same goes for Yugoslavia. Yeah. So what do you think the view is today in Yugoslavia about um, socialism versus an American style of capitalism. I, I gather from some of the things you've told me that there's a lot of debate on left versus the right there. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, but I wouldn't say uh, there's uh, so uh, economic debate. Uh, it's more about uh, ideological debates in Slovenia now about the left and the right and the purges. So, but about economics. So yeah, I would say uh, the century plant is. I think it's better, but there is, I don't uh, believe in free market because there is no free market today. There is a uh, socialism for the rich and the capitalism for the poor, I would say. <laughs> so, yeah. do, you, do you read Chomsky? Yeah, every day. <laughs> I have it I have right here. <laughs> oh, what's, show me that book again. Uh, Yugoslavia. Oh, wow. I've never, I've never seen or read that. Uh, yeah, that one's escaped uh, me. Yeah, um, I think it's pretty new, but yeah, it's quite it's quite good book uh, about, uh, especially about the Kosovo and Bosnia war. So yeah, right. I'll have to read that one. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I agree with you. I I think the um, the the propaganda that we have fed about uh, capitalism in the West is uh, full of malarkey. Um, it is socialism for the rich and we you know we see that every time there's a an economic collapse we saw it in the gfc under obama and we've seen it now in the us under the trump administration just with trillions of dollars being handed out willy-nilly and disappearing into the pockets of corporations and the people that own them uh maybe with what laura was saying um uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, oh, um, so uh, regarding the economy, um, I think when you Ameri what Americans don't understand is, for example, when Bernie Sanders is a candidate, uh, he gets called a communist, uh, a socialist, uh, or whatever. But if he would uh, run here, he would be probably uh, complete liberal, centrist, yeah. maybe yeah, a little yeah, bit liberal. to the left, but yeah. uh, America is so far to the right that Bernie Sanders is considered a crazy communist. And uh, mm. yeah, if uh, here in Slovenia, if he would run for president, he would probably be like be a social, social democrat, yeah, a social maybe, democrat yeah. probably, yeah, and not, not far to the left at all, yeah, America, yeah. which is. I think how he describes himself, really. Yes, no, I mean, he said he's democrat. Uh, yeah, he calls himself a democratic, democratic socialist, yeah. Socialist, yeah, yeah, something like that. Self, right. Self-proclaimed. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's, it's uh, ridiculous how uh, radical the American media tries to portray guys like that. Yeah, I was talking yesterday with an um, old friend of mine, David Markham, he and I did a show about Napoleon um, oh, fuck, 15 years ago as <laughs> my first history series. He lives in Toronto now, but he's from the US and he's a blue, 
blood Democrat, you know, Democrats can do no wrong. America can do no wrong unless it's something he can pawn off to Trump or the Republicans, basically. But, he, you know, he said, <laughs> we always get into these big debates about politics on Facebook and, um, uh, I, yeah, you know, I, uh, I was, I was talking to him yesterday. He said, you know, we agree on more things than we disagree on. We're both left politically. And I was like, oh, yeah. he said, well, you're more left than me, but I'm still progressive. And I'm like, mm, I mean, my view of where he is, he's kind of centrist or maybe a little bit right of center, <laughs> no, but he thinks he's a, he's, he's, you know, progressive on the left. Like, ah, oh, dude, your your metrics are all out of whack um, from my perspective. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the socialist uh, discussion that goes on over there, is there, has it turned into, you know, a typical European uh, style country where people are just arguing for, more higher distribution, uh, equitable distribution of wealth and more human rights or a people, or is there any significant party over there that is arguing for a return to socialism or is that completely dead? Uh, you want to go lower or uh, you can do that. <laughs> uh, well, um, basically for about 20 years or 20, 24 years, we had a strict, uh, Social Democrats versus um, uh, sort of the European National, People's Party. Nationalistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, sort yeah. of like in the EU. EU uh, I don't know if you know the situation, the EU Parliament, but it's basically the European, European People's Party and then the Social Democrats. This was basically all of Europe and in Slovenia as well. But about five years ago or, or 10 years ago, I think, yeah, 10 years ago, oh, sorry, five, in 2015, there was a uh, new party coming up called uh, Levica, which is basically means the left, uh, which um, advocates for democratic socialism, feminism, a bit of Euroscepticism as well, uh, because the European Union is obviously uh, a capitalist uh, organization. And it got, uh, I think, 5% in the first elections. And now they, they're up to 10. Uh, they're quite popular. Yeah. Um, and I think... Yeah, they're quite popular uh, with the young people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With, with people like, uh, uh, like Loro and I um, and other... They get most of the votes from not uh, uh, the working class, as you would expect, uh, but from uh, university professors, university students, uh, uh, basically, people who just uh, who are just 18 and decided to vote for the first time, they usually decide uh, for a party like this because they advocate um, a more fair society, and I hope they can do well in the future. Yeah, but in Slovenia, it really depends where you live and who you vote. Uh, for example, in one uh, places there is only right-wing uh, parties; they only vote for this. Uh, we have now. Uh, uh, Janis Jansha is a prime minister and he's uh, extreme right almost, yeah. And they and some uh, places they only vote for him. And then at my hometown, we uh, there is a social democrats a town. We vote for social democrats and in the in Ljubljana, in the capital city, they uh, vote uh, for more uh, liberal parties, uh, Levica and uh, and yeah. Yeah, it's sort, it's sort of this strict division to left and right, but there was a, um, 
again, on the left now, there's parties more to the left and parties less to the left. For example, Social Democrats, they're sort of um, Bernie Sanders style. And then we got the, the real communists. They're not communists, they're democratic socialists. But, uh, and they're gaining some traction, I think, uh, which is nice to see, at least in my opinion. And, and um, why do you think the younger people uh, are supporting the Levitsa party? Uh, yeah, they have these views about uh, feminism. They're not, they don't have these conservative views like a woman should be at home cooking and cleaning. Uh, yeah, they're feminist and uh, they are interested in um, environmental issues like uh, uh, climate changes and stuff. And so uh, Levita uh, does something about this. We have the approach, uh, protests about this. So I think it yeah, and gets if, them going. And if I may add uh, as well, for many young people, they feel like capital has failed them. Uh, as we talked in the beginning, we have a big housing problem. Um, there, there are very few ho- uh, basically government built buildings for the young and um, as well as climate change, they all feel like they direct uh, or we direct our anger at capitalism because it's, uh, it feels like it's a, f- a system that failed us. Uh, maybe it helped our parents a lot, but for us, um, we have no, we have no, um, everything is uh, getting expensive, more expensive. Uh, we have no houses. We barely get jobs. And then obviously you, you, you lean towards a different system. Yeah. So is, is it uh, like the situation in Russia where post the breakdown of the Soviet system, all of the assets of the country got divvied up into a handful of uh, friends of friends. And there's like a new billionaire oligarchy that control everything and everyone else has been thrown to the dogs or is it less severe? Less severe, but we have oligarchs less here severe, as well. Yeah. Yeah. But we have oligarchs yeah. here as well. A lot of people made money when everything was basically sold off uh, to private, uh, private enterprises. Yeah, we sold off our banks and stuff. So yeah. yeah. All of our, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Just go on, go on. No, look, it's it's good to hear you say that. I mean, the sort of stuff that Loro was um, mentioning before sounds like our Greens parties here. You know, they're advocating for, you know, more action against climate change and uh, more rights for women and minorities and um, sexual or gender fluidity and uh, all of that stuff, legalisation of weed. Do you guys have legal weed yet? Uh, I don't know. Medical, not, not medical marijuana is legal. Right. We, we barely have that here. That's how fucking behind we are. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, the, the economic uh, reform is obviously uh, a whole different story. And, um, you know, here we don't really even have that anymore. Like there's really our, our as I think happened around the West a lot, our, we have two major parties in Australia. The Labor Party is supposedly on the left. The Liberal Party, which is in a coalition with a party called the National Party here, which is mostly farmers, rural uh, people, they, they have a coalition. They're in government federally at the moment. But the Labor Party here is centrist now, probably centre-right, compared to where the Labor Party was when I was a kid. You know, we was, um, I've talked about this on one of our shows at some point, but in 1972, 73, when I was a little kid, the Labor Party got into power here for the first time in decades. 
with a guy called Gough Whitlam, who became prime minister. And um, within two weeks, he pulled us out of the Vietnam War, made university education free, made healthcare universal and free, uh, brought in no-fold divorce, um, and about 20 other things he did in two weeks. Just completely uh, also said he was going to kick the Americans out of here because the Americans had a secret base. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, really very left revolutionary sort of guy in terms of, you know, he didn't, he didn't institute socialism, but um, the, the, the Labor Party's been moving further and further to the right ever since. Um, but there's really nobody here arguing for the kind of, uh, economic reforms that I think we need to see. We're, we're moving more, more and more towards an American, an Americanized model, which is so fucking crazy because we're seeing firsthand and people always say, why do you go on about America so much? I go, because it's, because we're moving in that direction and we need to, we need to pay attention and realize that it's failed. I mean, I, I'm doing this series on the bullshit field at the moment. Is America a failed state? And the argument that I'm trying to make is, well, it, it, okay, if you if you try and apply the typical definitions of a failed state that we might apply to Uganda or, or, or Libya or you know whatever you whatever country you want that's um, at that level of fracturing into sort of all-out civil war, um, uh, no, okay, it's not at that level yet, but when you ask has a, has the country that's had um, been at the, the the top of the food chain economically and militarily for the last seven years lived up to its ex- expectations or lived up to um, the the promise of what capitalism should deliver no I mean they don't even they, they don't even have stuff that we've taken for granted in this country for 50 years, like universal healthcare and uh, free, uh, it's not, university education is not free here anymore, but it's relatively inexpensive compared to the US. Um, Gun control, basic things for protecting society. They can't even get their shit together. And uh, and then, you know, they uh, have a guy like Trump get elected which is not a sign of a country that's um, functioning <laughs> in a healthy manner, I would yeah, argue. You, and I, I worry that we're heading in that direction. Yeah, you should read uh, Chomsky's uh, Failed States book. I know if you've heard, heard about it. it. Yeah, yeah, I've got, yeah, I've read really that. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah he makes exactly. Yeah. Uh, and every, everything I've got I stole from Chomsky at some point in the last 30 years. All right. <laughs> Yeah, he is. Um, you know, I interviewed him once. Have you ever heard my interview with Chomsky? No, 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 oh. I didn't. Yeah, well, you probably weren't even born when I did that interview, but uh, you were actually yeah. you were born. You would have been young. Yeah, about fourteen years ago, um, uh, two thousand and seven, thirteen years ago, um, I had Chomsky um, on one of my podcasts and got to talk to him for an hour, which was uh, which was a thrill and. Um, I, I I did it at like three o'clock in the morning, my time. Um, Cause he was in Boston. I don't know what time it was for him, but um, yeah. And, and the, I think the day before uh, I had him on the show, um, some magazine in London had declared him the world's leading intellectual. 
and then I had to do an interview with him for an hour. So that was uh, uh, stressful. <laughs> kind of try and um, follow in his footsteps as much as I can, you know. I think that, it, you know, people, like my wife often says, well, the world's such a fucking mess. What can we do? I feel hopeless. And I go, well, we do what Chomsky's been doing for the last 60 years, 70 years. You know, we, we talk about it. Mm. We agitate. We, we, we try and get people to think about the issues deeply and come up with solutions. It's going to take smarter people than me to come up with the solutions. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with talking about it. I don't think. Sorry, could I pose you a question? Um, when because sure. we're talking about Chomsky, uh, he's basically this advocate for uh, vote for the lesser evil. Uh, even now, he said that uh, everyone should vote for Joe Biden. The Democrats should. You shouldn't go and write in Bernie Sanders or not vote for Trump. And I think uh, I disagree with him on that. But I would like to know what your opinion. Does, do you think that voting for the lesser evil actually helps or? Yeah, I remember um, when Chomsky said that in the last election, um, and he's probably said that in every election for the last 30 years. Um, you know, certainly in Australia, I disagree with that because the way our system works here is we do have um, independents and minor parties that even if they just win one seat somewhere in the country, they can actually end up with the balance of power in a hung parliament in our country and actually pull a lot of, pull a lot of weight. And they have done that um, uh, increasingly over the last 10 years as the major parties lose support, the minor parties are starting to win a few seats and, and um, can be quite effective in um, forcing the major party that they form, they allow to form government to adjust some of their policies. In the US, obviously, it doesn't work that way. Um, the problem I have, and I suspect it's the same problem you have, is when you vote for, say, Biden in this election, you're basically tacitly supporting the two-party corrupt system that they have. And the only way you're going to see meaningful change is to vote for third-party candidates and demonstrate through how you vote that uh, the major parties no longer have your support. I think Chomsky's argument, though, is that uh, Trump and the GOP in general are an existential threat to the human race right now. Yeah. The Democrats are bad. The Democrats are, uh, are corrupt. Their, their position on um, American geopolitics is not that much different from the Republicans and in some ways probably worse. I'm pretty confident that if Hillary Clinton had won four years ago, America would be involved in more wars now than it is. Yeah, under Trump. They would bomb some countries. Yeah. <laughs> they probably right. would have, I mean, maybe not Iran because Obama did the nuclear deal with Iran, but they probably would have done something in Venezuela. Yeah, Venezuela they would probably, yeah, yeah they, they would be throwing their weight around because the Democrats are, wrapped up in the industrial military complex over there. Um, the fact that Trump's avoided that, I mean, he's, he's sort of um, pulled his dick out a couple of times and flopped it on the, the Oval Office table, but then he seems to quickly put it back in and zip up his pants. And we've avoided anything like that, you know, um, somehow for the last yeah, three and a half years. 
Yeah, but he's doing bad things with uh, economic sanctions against Iran and Venezuela. It's it's also but bad. That, sure. Yeah, but that would be happening. That and worse might be happening yeah, under the Democrats, right? Yeah, Democrats right, yeah. l- love a good economic sanction as much as anyone. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. So, but but I think Chomsky's point is that um, you know Trump and the Republicans are literally an existential threat. I mean, and pr- predominantly with the lack of not just the lack of action on climate change, but the deliberate uh, undoing of the meager amount of work that the Obama administration did on climate change in terms of both American positions on it and uh, their role in the international community, which honestly was two tenths of fuck all anyway. But um, Trump is, uh, deliberately uh, disconnecting everything that the Obama administration put together. So, yeah. But, uh, um, yeah. Chomsky also, I think, wrote in one of his books that uh, in the context of uh, the voting system if in America, that if you live in a swing state, you should vote for the Democrats. And if you uh, live in the state where uh, it is uh, sure which one will uh, win, Democrats or Republicans, you should vote for the third party. Yes, he, has, he said that last time too. And um, I think he, that's his usual. So I'm just looking for my AirPods. Case. I think that's, his, yeah, his usual position. Yeah. And, it's a, and um, you know, my wife, who's an American and still votes, even though she's lived here for 11 years, um, you know, she votes in Washington, which is a pretty safe, uh, I think it's a red state. Seattle's blue, but I think Washington is red usually. Um, so she tends to vote uh, Democrat, even though she's no fan of the Democrats, but for that reason, yeah. I love uh, Zizek's point of view here. Um, he said that oh, we can't talk about Slovenia and not mention Slava Zizek. So he said that he would like to see Trump win. He said that in 2016. I don't know if he said that in 2020, that he would like to see Trump win. So maybe after four more years of Trump, the Democrats would be like, well, maybe we are doing something wrong. We lost twice to we lost we twi- we lost twice to this crazy guy. Maybe let's put Bernie. Uh, maybe get our uh, support to Bernie, and we we might actually uh, win, because it would make them realize that uh, they're doing big mistakes. I mean, if you lose twice to a guy like Trump, obviously you're doing something wrong, and. Uh, if you lose once to a guy <laughs> like Trump, like, you know, like, like my, my friend Markham and my Democrat friends over there, they go, well, you know, we nearly didn't lose. You know, it was only, you know, three million votes. I'm like, that shouldn't have even been fucking close. You know, well, we they won by three million votes and he won the fucking um, yeah. electoral college yeah. thing. But yeah. it shouldn't have even been close. The guy is a fucking lunatic. Like, it's just... <laughs> Yeah, but uh, look, I, 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 I take Zizek's point, but um, I don't think the Democrats have that level of self-awareness. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. yeah true, perhaps. I think they're a corporatist, uh, elitist uh, party that's so deeply embedded in the industrial military complex. There's no way in fucking hell they're putting someone even as uh, gentle, gently socialist as Bernie in, in letting him anywhere near the keys to the car, man. It would just, 
they, they would be terrified of um, what he might do to corporate power if he got elected, I think. Yeah. Anyway, he's too, he's too fucking old anyway, Bernie. Yeah. Bernie doesn't have another race in him unless he's, you know, unless he's got some sort of secret juice uh, <laughs> that he got from Jeffrey Epstein's, uh, <laughs> you know, lab of uh, virginal girls. I don't know, man. It's... Um, there's no way he's got another fucking run in him. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. It but, comes uh, down to people like AOC now, but yeah, I don't think I, she's too young, right? Yeah, she can't run she's for too young. To, yeah, maybe in a couple of years, yeah. She's quite uh You have to be what, forty? Oh, I, I don't know. Oh, is there an age limit? Somebody, I don't know. Is, is there an age limit? Yeah, there's an age no, limit. No, um no, I'm not sure if it's 35 or 40 um, to run for president. How, how old was Pete uh, Buttigieg? Wasn't he uh, very young, uh, the, uh, the mayor, Pete? Yeah, he did look young. Yeah. Um, hold on, I'm just checking this on Wikipedia. Ray's favorite source of information. <laughs> A 30, only 35. Ah, okay. Okay. Mm. I think AOC is uh, what? Mid, uh, around 30, 20, 30, I'd say. 27, 28, I'm guessing. Yeah. Born in 1989, so 31. Yeah. Oh, in the four years, yeah. Yeah, 30. Oh, birthday's three days after mine. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, she's, yeah, four more years she'll be able she'll to run. Be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, guys. Well, uh, good chat. Like, um, really happy to have you on um, and hear your points of view. What else before we close up? Because I got another show to do. What do you? Um, what else do you want to leave me with about Slovenia or Yugoslavia or Tito or anything? The the, the floor is yours. Step up. What do you want to say? You want to go first, Slovar? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would only say that Tito was, I think, a great leader and a great man with a non-aligned movement. I would say that was really important in the history. So that's something that he has done. And Edward Cardell there, that's important, yeah. Yeah, the non-aligned movement um, was a big deal. I agree with yeah. you. Yeah. Who created that? Wasn't it... Um, as far as I know, it was... In, uh, wasn't it Cardell's idea? Edward. It was Cardell's idea, as far yeah. as I know. Really? Cardell, yeah. Established in 1961 in Belgrade. Yeah. But it was... Uh, no, it was Nehru. Well, oh, well, according was, to Wikipedia, that was yeah, it was yeah, an initiative... The... Well, it was an initiative of Nehru, the Ghanaian president, Nkrumah, Sukarno in Indonesia, Nasser in Egypt, and uh, Tito, yeah, yeah. according to Wikipedia, but... And of course, Fidel um, supported it, but um, yeah. no, no, sorry, was, I, I didn't. Was, we didn't mean uh, Fidel. We meant uh, Cardell, uh, the Edward Cardell. Uh, yeah. No, no, I, oh, sorry, I understood. Yeah. I'm just, yeah, yeah, uh, I'm just saying, Fidel was also a oh, big yeah, supporter. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, but Cardell, Cardell might have been the uh, the the guy who pulled it all together. I think yeah, one of our university teachers said that, uh, yeah. as, well, whatever you think about him, uh, that uh, 
he was the ideolo- ideological, I don't know how you can say that. Uh, chief. The chief. guy behind who, chief. Yeah, yeah, who, yeah. Who, wrote, who wrote the idea, basically. Uh, and basically Tito adopted it then. Yeah. Wow, fantastic. Well, there you go. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. What else do you have to uh, leave us with? Uh, yeah, as a Sloto said, I would like to, um, especially for Americans listening to, the, uh, to this podcast, I would like them to understand that the world sees a lot of things different than them. And I would like to ask them <laughs> that uh, when they view Yugoslavia, not just take us as some communist savages who fought crazy wars <laughs> between each other, but as a... Um, a state that had a long history, difficult history, and maybe try to understand us why we look at the world the way we do. And uh, yeah, basically that's it from me, but I would like to invite you as well to Slovenia when you can, when this Corona crisis is over, you can come visit us. We'll show you around. And my best, uh, one of my best friends, his wife is from Croatia. Uh, well, her family's from Croatia. I think she was born here, but um they they used to go back a lot. I'm talking 30 years ago. They would go back to Croatia on holidays, and um, he's they've always told me, man, that part of the world is the most beautiful part of the world. Like they've travelled all over the world too. They're like, oh, it's, it's amazing. So yeah, I've wanted to go over there for 30 years. So um, next time I go to Europe, which will be as soon as the the wall comes down, the COVID wall. Uh, <laughs> I'll definitely come over. Let me ask you a question before you go, though. I was having this discussion with my friend David Markham the other day. Um, who, which country would you say is the biggest threat to world peace right now? Well, United States. United States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, he, I was saying, like, he said, well, <laughs> he keeps trying to tell me that America's the leader of the free world. I'm like, A, no, we never fucking voted for you. B, you're actually the biggest, the, the rest of the world sees you as the biggest threat to world peace, not as the leader of the free world. He goes, I don't believe anyone except you thinks that's true. Like, man, you're so fucking sheltered, I tell you. Um, anywho, well, that was... That was great, boys. Thank you very much for coming on and um, best of luck in your studies. Uh, and um, yeah, that's it. Really, I don't know. I don't have anything else to say. Okay, thank you for inviting us on. Ray apologizes for not making it, but it's like 2 a.m. in the morning, his time uh, or something. Okay. Like okay. okay. Mm. No problem. Mm. Say hi. But when I come over, I'll bring him. I'll bring him and you can, um, you know, slap him around. <laughs> in person uh, it's a lot of fun we'll do. it's cute <laughs> all right boys yeah. have a good day you too thank Same. you bye bye an iron curtain has descended across the continent military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.